As we look now in Exodus, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Exodus. So we get now to Exodus chapter 6. If you're uh, new and just joining us, we began this study through the book of Exodus a few weeks ago. It's one of the things that marks us here at the church um, is we're expository teachers. What that means is the majority of time we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase through books of the Bible. Um, we believe the Bible is God revealing and speaking to us. So we just want every Sunday to hold a microphone up to him and let him speak to us. And so we're jumping into Exodus 6 in the middle of a conversation, a conversation between Moses and God. So remember, quick recap, Moses has uh, been sent by God via a burning bush to go to Egypt, go to Pharaoh, confront Pharaoh, let my people go, takes his brother Aaron, they go. They go to the Israelites first in Egypt who've been enslaved for hundreds of years. They hear the plan from Moses and they're like, that sounds great. Thumbs up, we're in on that plan. So Moses, feeling fairly confident, goes to Pharaoh. We see last week in chapter 5, him and his brother walk in probably with a certain kind of swagger because they've seen God's greatness through these signs and miracles and promises and all of Israel's on board. And they walk into Pharaoh and in the beginning of chapter 5, make the great declaration, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who are you talking to? What are you talking about? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And by the way, I'm not letting the Israelites go. You, you, you know the relationship here? I'm, I'm not listening to you. And the plan kind of falls flat on its face. And not only do things not change, but things get a lot worse for the people of Israel. As then Pharaoh turns and makes their work uh, as slaves in Israel that much harder, saying, they're not going to provide straw anymore for the bricks that you're making and constructing all these things around Egypt, but you've got to hit the same quota. And they were oppressed and suffered and sorrow and if they didn't meet that quota then they were beaten and things went from bad to worse and the Israelites then turn on Moses and turn on God by the end of chapter 5 and they go hey uh, Moses this is your fault things were okay when we were just regular slaves but now it's miserable this is your fault you've made us a stench to Pharaoh you made us reek to him and we're done with you and then Moses goes back to God and he's like uh, God, this was different than the whole bush conversation we had a couple weeks ago. This isn't playing out like that. And he finishes chapter 5 with this question, or really this accusation. You haven't rescued your people at all. Not even a little bit. God, you haven't done anything. You haven't moved an inch towards rescue. You haven't rescued them at all. And that's the end of chapter 5. And we went ahead and peeked into verse 1 of chapter 6 last week as God replies to Moses and says, Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And again, the whole of the Exodus narrative hinges on that word now as God now puts into motion his plan as he gets involved. He says, because of a strong hand, Pharaoh will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. God says, you're about to see now, Moses, What's going to happen? And here now in the rest of chapter, beginning of chapter 6 in verses 2 through 13, where we'll spend our time this morning, God makes further promises to Moses about what's going to happen. And so in verses 2 through 13, we're going to see what God did. See that in verses 2 through 5. We'll see what God will do. We'll see that in verses 6 and 8. And then we'll see how people respond. In verses 9 through 13. So that's kind of our outline if you're a note taker. What God will do, what God did, what God will do, and how people respond. 
So God continues talking to Moses. Again, remember the emotional state that Moses is in right now. The people that he's come to redeem have just totally turned their back on him. They're done with him. Moses is accusing God, God, you haven't rescued your people at all. And so God now steps in to promise freedom. And look at what God begins with in verses two through five. He looks back and points back to what he did in the past. Verses two through five, God is looking back. God then spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Every one of the verbs in that section are past tense. And every subject of those verbs is a pronoun. And notice what pronoun it is. I. God is the one who is speaking here. And God is the one who is acting. And notice what he says. First he says, he appeared. I appeared in verse 3. He says, I'm the one, Moses, that revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't come find me. I appeared to them. I went to them. And while they didn't know me as the Lord, they knew me as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, the Almighty One. God says, I appeared to them. But not only did he appear to them and just kind of show them who he was, God then does what? He established a covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land that they lived in as aliens. God then not only appears, but he also establishes his covenant. And we can't dive into the importance of that phrase right now because there's more to cover. But the whole relationship of God with his people in the Old Testament and the New hinges on that word, covenant. It's like a promise, an oath, a vow. And it's a vow, a covenant that God makes with his people. He goes to them and makes a covenant. We see this with Abraham was the covenant he makes in chapter, Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17. He makes this covenant, this promise not contractual, it's, it's one way, it's a promise. Here's what will happen, Abraham. And part of that was giving them this land in Canaan. He appeared to them. He established his covenant with them. And then we see he heard in verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, who the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves. God hears them, has compassion on them. And so this whole view of God that kind of creates the world, winds it up like a, a watch and sets it in motion, steps back, isn't true of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible hears the cries of his people. He's aware of the suffering of his children. We see in the New Testament, Jesus is described as a sympathetic high priest. And just trying to wrap our minds around that, that God knows the pain, the suffering, the sorrow that you're walking through today. Friends, it's unimaginable. But that's the God that we serve, a God who hears the cries of his people. So he appeared, he established, he heard. And in verse five, he remembered his covenant. He remembered. It's not like he forgot. It's not like he was doing other things like, oh, that's right, forgot about the covenant. Let's go and get this done. This is language the Bible will often use to help us understand a God who is so different from us. He's not bound by time. He's outside of eternity. He created all of us. So he doesn't forget, but it's in this moment that there is an, an acting of this plan, a remembering of his covenant in which now the plan will take place. This is where God begins in talking to Moses, saying, Moses, remember what I've done. 
Look to the past and see my promise. See my covenant. But then he shifts to what God will do in verses 6 through 8. You see in verse 6, there's this word, therefore. That word is always important in the Bible. When you see it, you should always ask, what is it there for? It's connecting something. God here in his speaking is connecting what he has just said, all the promises and the covenant that he made with his people, therefore is about to do something. And what's it going to do? Well, he goes into then these great acts of salvation that he will do and all of these great promises that he will do for his people, all these great actions that will come. But here's what I want you to see, that what God will do is rooted in what God has promised. Not in the value or the earning of his people, but in what he's promised. So God wasn't up in heaven going, okay, let's wait until the Israelites kind of get their acts together and kind of figure it out, and then I'll step in. No, God's actions are based off of what he has promised. His words precede his actions. He has said he would do all of these things, and then he steps in and does them. This is God's MO through the whole Bible. Right? We see this even most clearly in Jesus who talks all the time about the fact that he would have to die, he would have to come, he would come back from the dead, he would re be resurrected three days later. And then guess what? That's exactly what he did. If you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I, I, we say this often, but I hope this is a church where you feel comfortable, where you feel welcome. For me, though, as I look and try to reasonably engage with the scriptures, one of the things that's so persuasive to me is not just the fact that Jesus lived a life, died, was raised from the dead, and then looked back and went, Oh, I guess I'm God. Like, I'm not dead anymore. Before he died, Jesus was saying, here's what I'm going to do. So if you ever meet anybody that's like, hey, heads up, I'm going to die. I'm not going to stay dead, though. You probably, A, think the person's crazy. And then, B, just write them off. But then you hear that that guy who said that he was going to die and come back from the dead died and then came back from the dead. You'd probably start scratching your head going, First of all, how did he do it? And second of all, how did he know he was going to do it? So one of the things for me that as I look at Jesus and his life, we see this is what God does over and over again. He doesn't look back to try to then decipher what has happened. His words always precede his actions. He says, here's what I'm going to do. And then he does that. Therefore, then tell the Israelites, God says, I am the Lord. And God then gives this great promise of salvation to his people who have been stuck for centuries in slavery, who have now experienced this crushing weight and overwhelming depression of having their dreams unmet and their hopes completely deferred, God steps in and gives them this great promise in verses 6 through 8. And in it, we see four different aspects of salvation. So as we do it, before we kind of go on, I think, yeah, before we go on in the slide, just keep that there. I want to briefly read through 6 through 8. And as I do it, I want you to count how many times you hear these two words, I will. So just count as we read then verses 6 through 8, as God says what he will do. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. 
Did you hear? There's seven I wills in those two verses. There are these great I will promises of salvation. And in them, we see these four different aspects of salvation within them. First, we see the liberation promise in salvation. As God says, first, I will bring you out and I will rescue you from slavery. There is liberation that's given and promised to his people. God knows they're in slavery and he's telling them, I will liberate you. The chains that you're in, you will not stay in. The bonds that you're in right now that you can't get out of, I will free you from. I will come and bring you out from slavery. I will rescue you from slavery. All the oppression, all the suffering, all the bondage, it'll be done. You'll be freed from them and I will liberate you from their chains. That's the first aspect of salvation we see is liberation. Second aspect of, of salvation we see is redemption. Redemption, as God promises this, I will redeem you. This word is another hugely important biblical word. It's only the second time it's popped up in the Bible so far. The other time was in reference to, to uh, Joseph at the end of Genesis. So the first time it's in reference here to God. As he says, I will redeem you. Now this word will continue to build throughout the Old Testament and what it means to redeem someone. It's actually built into the Old Testament law as well. And what it means to be a redeemer in the Old Testament law you have to be related to a person to be able to redeem them. And there's this phrase that's developed called a kinsman redeemer, this related, this relative who can redeem you. And that kinsman is responsible for avenging a murdered relative, for redeeming an enslaved relative, or providing an heir for a deceased relative. This is what a kinsman redeemer would do. Even if, especially if, it means great personal loss to that redeemer. So if a uh, a relative is enslaved because of a debt that they would owe that they can't pay, this kinsman redeemer steps in and pays the debt to free them from slavery and acts then as a kinsman redeemer to be an avenger, a protector, and a provider. And what God is saying here is that he will step in as the kinsman redeemer of his people to avenge, protect, and provide for them because they are his and he will redeem them even when it will mean great personal loss to him. He will redeem them. It's the second aspect of salvation that we see. The third aspect of salvation we see is adoption. Adoption. We see this in the great promise, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. This idea of taking them as his people, it's building on what he described just two chapters ago in chapter four, verse 22 as God says that he will adopt the Israelites, his, his sons, his daughters, and he will be their father. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. This is the first time this promise is introduced in the Bible. And friends, in, in a number of ways, this is the refrain, the chorus that comes up throughout the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the scriptures. This promise, God introduces it here. I will be your God and you will be my people as God introduces this promise of adoption, being a part of a family. I don't know if we always, I grew up at least, not understanding the significance of what it means to be adopted by God. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite authors, recently died in the last few years. He's an Anglican minister. He put it this way. He said, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. That's quite a claim. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification, the process of our sin, the penalty of our sin being dealt with and us being 
made righteous and reconciled back to God, higher than even than justification. How would he make that claim? Well, I think because when we are justified, we're declared righteous in the court of God's law. Our sin is dealt with and God gives us the perfect life of Jesus in return. And we stand when we're justified in a courtroom reconciled to a holy God. Friends, that is something to praise. That is something to sing about. There are tons of songs written about that. But when we are adopted, we move from a courtroom into a living room. There's a richness that's there that isn't just simply a legal declaration, but affection and warmth and closeness are at the heart of adoption. To be reconciled with God the judge is a great thing, but to be embraced by God the Father is a far greater thing. And God here promises his people that he will not only free them from slavery, that he will not only redeem them, but then he will take them as his own, and they will be his, and he will be theirs. The third aspect of salvation that we see. Final fourth aspect of salvation we see here in this text is the promise of inheritance. The promise of inheritance in these last two I will statements. As he tells them, I will bring you to the land and I will give it to you as a possession. There is a possession and an inheritance that's waiting for the people of Israel. So God is not only delivering them from something, he is taking them to something. That's how God always works. He takes you from to draw you to. And he is bringing them to this inheritance, this promise, this possession that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to this covenant that he gave to them. So we see these great promises of what God will do. And notice how this whole thing started and ended with God. If you go all the way back up to verse 2, look at how God began this discourse. First sentence, I am the Lord. Two other times throughout throughout the conversation with Moses, he reminds them, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And then look at the very last sentence in verse 8 and how he closes these promises. I am the Lord. Moses is looking around in circumstances going, God, this stuff isn't making sense. It's not lining up with your promises. Why aren't you doing anything? Do something. You said you were going to deliver your people. You haven't rescued them at all. You haven't done anything. And Moses is asking for God to change something. And God steps in and says, Moses, first you have to know not what I will do, but you have to know who I am. And I am the Lord. And he goes back and reminds him of what he did. And then he tells him what he will do. And so all through this text, notice where the focus is. The focus is centered on God, not on man. I am the Lord. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I am the Lord. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I am the Lord. Friends, there is a, there is a pull and a temptation both within ourselves and sometimes in popular Christian circles, to focus our worship on man, for our worship to be man-centered on us and how great we are and how we feel. But friends, worship in the Bible is always centered on God. It's focused on Him. Certainly there's times we respond to it. Certainly there are times that we talk about the way in which God loves us and how we feel. Of course, read the Psalms, it's everywhere. But the focus is centered on God. It's on Him. He is the primary actor of salvation. Where are the Israelites in all of this? He's the one who's stepping in. That's why Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord. It is him and him alone. And so these are the great promises that God gives then to Moses. 
So you've got to imagine, okay, God gives his great halftime speech. The teams huddle together. They're ready to go back in the second half and crush it, right? Surely. What incredible promises. I mean, these are the promises the Bible is built on. It doesn't get much sweeter than this. And the people of Israel are hearing it for the first time. Oh, what's their response going to be? I can't wait to see. Let's see. Let's read verse 9. Let's see how the people respond. Moses told the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. How did the people respond? Israel didn't listen. They didn't listen to why, because of their broken spirit and hard labor, because they were weighed down, because of the stuff in this world that had piled on them and the slavery and bondage that they were bound by, they couldn't break free, kept their ears from hearing the promise of deliverance that was coming. And so friends, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, how many times have you felt that? Felt like the world is just weighing you down. How can you take another step because of the weight that's on your shoulders? Maybe it's the circumstances in your life, tragedy or pain or sorrow. Maybe it's sin in your own life that you find, maybe you're a Christian, but you find you keep coming back to this sin that you feel like you're in bondage to, and it's weighing you down. Maybe you're not a Christian and you've tried to find anything in this world that can bring satisfaction to your soul, and everything can't quite deliver what it says that it can. And we keep being weighed down. And when we hear these great promises from God, we don't listen because of a broken spirit and hard labor. So the people don't listen. But Moses, surely. I mean, the burning bush, again, the hand with the leprosy, the, stake into the, the snake into the staff, it was awesome. God turned the river into blood. Moses saw it all. Surely Moses is going to respond differently. Let's see. I bet so. Let's read. 10 through 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Israel doesn't listen, and Moses isn't sure. That's how the people respond to these great promises from God. The people ignore it, and the leader of God's people is like, uh, I don't know, God. I was with you until chapter 5. And then it just didn't pan out. And listen, the Israelites aren't listening. You've met Pharaoh, right? I, I just don't think he's going to be convinced. Because remember, I don't know if you remember this, God, I'm not a very good speaker. I know we've gone through this and you promised Aaron to be with me and speak for me. But like, this is a real issue. I don't think you understand how insurmountable this obstacle is. He's not going to listen. And God still in his kindness doesn't end the story of Exodus there. If I'm God, I probably end the story there. Moses, seriously, all that I've done for you, all that I've promised to do for you, You've known about me. You've heard about me. You've seen the stuff. Here's what I'm going to do. And then it's met from my people with like not listening to you. And then the leader going, uh, I'm going to bring up another excuse that we've already talked about. I end the story of Exodus right there. And I'm like, listen, fine. I have tried to help. But if you don't want it, fine. 
Maybe y'all are better parents than I am, but that's sometimes how I'll feel and offering help. And it's like, no, 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 I can do it. I'm like, fine, go ahead. You think you can do it? Go ahead. Go ahead. Then. Go, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. But God doesn't end the story of Exodus there. Partly because salvation doesn't belong to his people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And his actions are rooted in and founded in his promise. And he has promised to save his people. And so that is exactly what the Lord is going to do. And he steps in. Israel doesn't listen. And Moses isn't sure. But friends, what about you? How do you respond to God's promises? In particular, how do you respond to God's great promise of salvation? Do you feel so weighed down in this world? You find it hard to even listen. You don't even hear it anymore. There's too many things to worry about and deal with in this life. Do you worry, kind of making excuses why, uh, God, I can't, I can't step into the story that you're calling me into for these whole myriad of reasons. I'm too busy, got too much stuff going on, my calendar's filled, there's other better people, I'm not the guy, there are things that, there's, things, there's other people that you should call, not me. And we go through and make a list of excuses about why we aren't the people that God should use. Our friends, do we hear what God has done and offered to us, these great promise of salvation, and do we then come to him and respond with him with a blank check of our lives and say, God, just like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I'm yours because you've purchased me. You've set me free. You have redeemed me. You have adopted me and you have given me an inheritance. And so I'm yours. Do with me as you please. Whatever you want to use me for your glory and your mission, God, I'm all in because of what you've done for me. Or do we push him away or do we make excuses? You may say, well, Caleb, but those promises were different, right? I don't, we don't hear those exact promises that God has given to us. I'm not enslaved in Egypt hearing these promises. This isn't about me. This was about the Israelites in Egypt. It's not about me. Uh, th these promises don't relate to me. It's not about my response. It's just about them and, and Exodus and this old history. It's interesting, but it doesn't relate to me. Or as we talked about this at the very beginning of the book, but it's worth coming back to again and understanding how we study and apply the Bible and seeing if we just read the book of Exodus like an interesting history of Israel, we will have missed the purpose of the book of Exodus. When Jesus read the Old Testament, he read it about all the things concerning himself. He knew that everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards and bearing witness to him. And we want to read it with the same eyes. Like, think about it this way. I'm not a music theory guy, but I love music. I'm not necessarily musical. I think God in his wisdom didn't really give me much musical talent because he knew that if he did, I would, my pride would far outweigh my musical talent. And so in an opportunity to keep me humble, much like Moses' stuttering lips, God gave me a non-harmonic voice. But I do love music. And I remember taking a music theory class in college. And we studied uh, a number of old composers. And there was one composer in particular, Mozart, as we studied one of his compositions that he did. And it was called 12 Variations on A Vous Diraget Maman. It's French. And you may not know the title, but you know the tune. And here's the tune that Mozart wrote. He composed this at age 25, by the way. That's what Mozart was doing at 25, making musical masterpieces. 
I spent like $23 at Taco Bell when I was 25 and was proud of that. Mozart was making history. Anyway, so he writes this, and here's the tune for the song. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Now you've got to listen to Garrett the rest of the time. It's just downhill from here. Did you know that Mozart had the tune for Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? Now he adapted it from a French uh, folk tune and then turned it into taking that tune and having 12 different variations all throughout. Did you also know that tune is not only tuned for Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but also the ABC song? And Ba Ba Black Sheep. Some of you, if you didn't hear anything else, your mind has just exploded at this point. <laughs> but in this composition, 12 variations of Mozart, as we were studying it, what he does is in the very first uh, movement, he introduces the theme. It's just this simple melody. It's clear. And then after he introduces the theme, he then takes 12 variations on that theme, taking a different angle each time. There's a melodic variation where he elaborates on the melody line, makes it more complex. There's a rhythmic variation where he adds syncopated offbeats. There's a harmonic variation where he introduces powerful new chords that were previously simply implied by the theme. There's also a minor variation where he jumps into parallel minor chords and combines three different techniques of counterpoint, suspensions, and imitation. And what he does in this composition, again, he takes this simple theme of the melody and then he begins all these variations, the simple themes clearly introduced, and then it's repeated with different variations and points of emphasis, ultimately culminating as the tempo quickens and the orchestra joins in for the grand finale at the end. Well, friends, what I want us to see as we study the Bible is we need to study the Bible like Mozart wrote music. Because here in Exodus 6, the melodic theme of God's salvation is introduced clearly for the very first time. I am the Lord, you will be my people, and I will be your God. It's a simple melody, but it's so profound. It will span countries, continents, and generations. And throughout the rest of the Bible, there's plenty of variations on that melody line throughout the scriptures. The elaboration of this theme through the wilderness, the syncopated offbeats in Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, the crescendo and major chords of Solomon's reign and the great temple, and the day crescendo and the minor chords of exile, finally limping along through the final pages of the Old, temp uh, the Old Testament as they rebuild the temple, but it's a, sh a sham of what it used to be. It's pathetic compared to the great temple of Solomon. And then ultimately leading to this long pause of silence. Is the symphony over? Is the melody done? After a long pause from the orchestra, the conductor steps in with a thrill of hope as the weary world rejoices. And the melody of salvation picks up speed as God himself, himself steps into the story of that very first Christmas. And we see Jesus then living a life that we could have lived and should have lived and then dying a death that we deserve, ultimately going to the cross, standing in our place for our sin, 
taking on the punishment for our sin on himself, absorbing then the very wrath of God that was meant for me because of my rebellion against a holy God. Jesus stepped in to die for me, and he did just that. God died, and it seems like the melody's over. But then three days later, you can almost hear God say, just like he did in Exodus 6.1, now the Lord says that you will see what I will do to the enemy that has my people. And he rolls the stone away and Jesus walks out of the grave that held his body because the grave could not contain the glory and the promises and the power of the Almighty. And Jesus walked forward, defeating our enemy in our place and bringing us then life over death that we could have never had on our own, bringing us then freedom and liberation and all the promises that God had given him. And he ascended to heaven, and one day he is coming back. And when he comes back, he will take his people and bring them to the land that he had promised once and for all, to that promised land that's given to each and every one of his people. And we see that Jesus is the great liberator who frees us from our sins by his blood, that Jesus is the great redeemer that paid a costly price to purchase his people on the cross so that we can now say that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that Jesus is the one who's brought us into the family of God as sons and daughters so we can now come to God, not just as a judge or the great I am, but as Abba, our Father. And at the end of all of our days, it will be Jesus that brings us into that great land that's promised of unending glory. And by his resurrection, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading that is kept in heaven as we have now become co-heirs with Christ himself. And that inheritance that is his is now ours because we are united to him. And in Exodus 6, we see God make all of these promises and in Christ, we see him keep every single one of them. That every single one of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. The story of Exodus, friends, is the story of salvation. It isn't just meant for Israel. It is meant for you. It is meant for me. And so here is our question as we leave this text. How will you respond to this great promise of salvation? With apathy, with indifference, with rejection? Or will you come to him? seeing that he didn't wait for you to get your life together. He came to you. And all of the great I wills of the gospel are extended to you. That while you were still an enemy, he died for you. And he made you his own. He didn't wait for you to become lovable. He made you lovely. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, you feel enslaved to sin, and you feel this nagging guilt in your heart that something is off. Friends, hear the invitation of Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all of you that are weighed down by this world, by sorrow, by pain, by sin, by death, all the brokenness, come to me and I will give you rest. For I am gentle 
and lowly in heart. How can Jesus offer that? Because, friends, Jesus is the true and better Moses who came to the one who had his people in chains, enslaved to sin, enslaved to the fear of death. And Jesus went toe-to-toe with that enemy, and he defeated him. And he liberated us. And he redeemed us. He adopted us. And he has given us an inheritance. Friends, that is yours today. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove anything to God. All you have to do is turn and say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you are, and I'm going to follow you. You're going to do it imperfectly because we're human, and we're going to do stuff like Moses over and over again. You don't just become perfect. God doesn't just beam you up to heaven. You're going to continue to fall, and that's why you need the gospel not just on the first day you're a Christian. You need it every day you're a Christian. But friends, that rest, if you've been looking for it, that rest can be yours today. And Christ, and the great liberator of your slavery, if you come to him, don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till six months. Come today. If you're like, what does that mean? If you want to know what it means, come talk to me or Jim, one of our pastors. And we'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about questions that you may have. But friends, what we have to see walking away from this text is asking the question, how do we respond to these great promises of salvation? As we see the story in Exodus 6, is not just a story for Israel, but it's a story for us. As we see the infinite and amazing love of God displayed as he takes us to be his own. And he promises to then be our God. I think it's so poignant then that as we see this promise first introduced in Exodus 6, we close this sermon in the way the Bible closes. At the very end in Revelation Chapter 21, second to last chapter in the Bible. John has this vision of what eternity will look like. The great consummation of redemption and salvation. And this is what he sees. Revelation 21, verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. And hear this next sentence. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. And will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. The great promise introduced in Exodus 6. Friends, one, way, one day will be revealed. When Jesus comes and brings us into our inheritance and we will hear that voice say again, just as Moses did, that we will be his peoples and God himself will be with us and will be our God. Let's pray. Lord, who are we that you would be mindful of us? God, we have done nothing but rejected you and rebelled against you and tried to do things our own way. And yet, because of the covenant that you've made, Lord, through Jesus, through this new covenant, Lord, you then in your love came to free us, deliver us, liberate us 
You came to redeem us, to purchase us. Lord, you came to adopt us, to bring us into your family. And you came to make us, God, possessors of a greater and undefilable inheritance, a possession that nothing can take away. God, help us to live in light of these very great and precious promises. Not just of what you've done, Lord, but what also you will do. And Lord, give us also the encouragement that we see, that even when we respond like Israel or Moses, even whenever we are faithless, Lord, that you remain faithful. For you cannot deny yourself. Lord, we love you and we praise you for the love that you've shown us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.